I'm assuming this first announcement is no longer in effect. No, it's reading. We will finish decorating the church for Christmas tomorrow. Yeah. We're, we, we still need to oh, we, the, the tree's naked. Right. And not ashamed. All right, that announcement is that we need to finish decorating the church, finish decorating the tree. So if you would like to help, please be here at 10 a.m. tomorrow, right? Okay. And then on the 15th, we will have children's dedication. There are three families with four kids that will be dedicated on that morning. And then we afterwards, we'll have our Christmas luncheon. So if you would still, if there are any other families that would like to participate to talk to Cheryl uh, Jeffries. And for the luncheon, the church provides the meat, and there will be sign-up sheets for the sides and desserts, and that will be posted in the fellowship hall. The other part of the announcement, the other announcement, there it is, is that on Christmas Eve, which is a Tuesday night Bible class, in lieu of our regular Tuesday night Bible class, we will meet at 7 a.m. All the stores will be closed. Everybody's going to be going home. A lot of people aren't even going to work. So it's going to be at 7. That means we'll be finished at 8 so people can go home and have family time. What? P.M. Did I say a.m.? P.M. Just seeing to make sure you pay attention. Okay, at 7 p.m., we'll have 7 p.m. to 8 p.m., we'll have our uh, Christmas communion service. Uh, I was talking with another pastor the other day, and he made the comment, he laughed. He said, well, do you do have a Thanksgiving service? I said, no. He said, well, we have, have one because they can do it on Wednesday night, regular Wednesday night Bible class. He said, we used to do it on Thursday morning, but it's really funny. People, It's hard for people to get out and worship God on a holiday that focuses on what God has done for us. There's a certain irony there. That used to be standard in every family. Tuesday, that, you know, Christmas Eve, you would go to church. That used to be standard. And it is a pedagogical tool for the children and for all of us to be reminded. So that is, that is it. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. This is always necessary, not just when we come together at Bible class. We do this regularly, consistently, in order to be remind, to remind us of its importance and to make us more and more conscientious throughout each day that we need to keep short accounts with the Lord and we need to confess sin and walk by the Holy Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just so grateful that we have forgiveness of sin, that you have provided the perfect solution through Jesus Christ who died on the cross and paid that sin penalty 
But nevertheless, when we sin, it still has an impact on our spiritual life. It shifts us from walking by the Spirit to walking according to the sin nature. And the way to shift back is to admit or acknowledge those sins to you. And we're thankful for our forgiveness. We're thankful for our eternal forgiveness, our eternal relationship with you, the fact that you have given us life and you have given us abundant life and that we can have the joy of our salvation as we walk with you and serve you and live out our lives. And we're so thankful for that. Father, we pray that tonight as we study, you'll help us to think clearly, precisely about what the Scripture teaches and come to understand the importance of these truths in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in our Second Samuel study, and we're going to have a little side study for probably three weeks, I'm guessing. Um, I don't know, is that going to get me into Christmas? We'll, no, we'll, we'll miss it. I want to finish it before that Tuesday night. Uh, at uh, Anyway, so we'll study this. And it comes up at an appropriate time in the text of, of Samuel because last week we studied about the death of the infant who was conceived by David and Bathsheba in uh, their adulterous affair. And the punishment on that one of the... Uh, uh, one aspect of the divine discipline on David was the death of this of this son. But when we look at this, it brings to focus the value of human life, the significance of human life. And it's an election year, so we always have a lot of discussion about whether you're pro-life, pro-choice, anti-choice, anti-life, whatever it may be. And we need to be reminded of what the Scripture teaches on this and to think clearly about it. It's, for some people, it's a very emotional issue, but we need to exclude emotion and just say, what does the Bible really teach about this? And if you think some other things that we study are confusing and have a lot of different opinions and controversy, you ain't seen nothing yet. This is a topic that since 1973 and the Roe v. Wade decision has blown, I won't say out of proportion, but it has become such an enormous issue that I believe from, and I have gone back and I typically will, if I've taught something in detail like this, I typically will take a lot of time to go back and read things I haven't read before, see what's new, check things, analyze things. And it it is just amazing the areas of confusion that are out there. And people stake their claims, and then they just defend them. We see this in all through our culture today. Very few people are willing to stop and think outside the box of whatever they have decided is their, uh, their position. And that is a, a major problem. So what happens is people don't discuss, they don't read perhaps challenging or different uh, positions, and think through what the evidence is and what the arguments are. And that's very important. We can't grow and mature as people in any area unless we are learning. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to end up uh, agreeing with positions that we disagree with, but we don't have to disagree in the way that we're dividing the nation as we see today. And this is one of those 
you know, hot button issues that so often gets misrepresented, not only uh, by politicians but by theologians and and uh, many many Christians. They've never thought through the issues. One of the truisms of today is that the uh, upcoming generation, the millennials and those who are older than they, uh, have a vacuum in their head in relation to history. And when it comes to history of theology and doctrine, it's even more pronounced. And so uh, it's important, and I thought it was important enough to go back to this study because a lot of people are not aware of the history of thought in this particular area. And they have been exposed to certain views in the last 40 years that exclude a lot of his, historically accurate information and mis, there are a lot of misrepresentations. And these misrepresentations then get picked up by people and used and abused to knock the other side around. One example of that occurred recently when one of the Democrat candidates for president, Pete Buttigieg, uh, also known as Mayor Pete, uh, he's appointed himself as the presidential interpreter of Christian orthodoxy. And you can pretty much bet on it that whatever comes out of his mouth in expressing what Christian, Christians believe, it's not anywhere close to the truth. He has distorted quite a bit. And he gained headlines about two months ago when he uh, made the statement to justify his stance on late-term abortion. He invoked the, that the Christian belief was that life only begins with the first breath. Now, for a lot of Christians, that view was brand new information. They had never heard anything close to that. And unfortunately, the way in which he stated it was partially true and partially false, and a gross misrepresentation of this principle. The principle, as we'll see in our study, is that life, full human life, and I believe in soulment, we're going to talk about that tonight, begins at, at, at birth. But that's not the beginning of life. Life begins at conception. The soul may not be present, but that doesn't minimize, change, or devalue what is going on in the womb. What is going on in the womb is God's process of building human life. And it's like building a house. You build a house and you have a a contractor who's putting everything together and he's building the house and you get within a couple of weeks of moving in and when you move in then that house will become a home and then some felon comes along and burns the house down what do you say you say somebody destroyed my home because you're already thinking of what the end result is going to be the end result isn't going to be just a bricks-and-mortar house. It's going to be your, your home. That's the intent. And they have destroyed all that might have been. Uh, and we referred to that as potential. And that's a fairly good analogy for a view that is 
often ignored in Christianity, especially when it comes to the view that that I have taught for many years related to uh, the or, full origin of human life, is that it, it it starts with the building of the biological life, the building of the physical home for the soul eventually. But that doesn't minimize what is happening in the womb at all. And unfortunately, there are some people today in the midst of all of this who think that's what it does. That's what Buttigieg did. He said, well, that means that you can abort. It has never, ever in 2,000 years of Christian history been a justification for abortion, for uh, voluntary uh, abortion. Never. It ha- the historic position of Christians, no matter how they viewed insolment, was always that abortion was wrong. Abortion was interfering with God's process of building a new life, a new human being, and as such, it had value, it had significance, and should not be treated as if it were worthless and and nothing. So we have to look at all of these different uh, concepts, and what I'm going to do tonight is primarily look at these first three questions What is the defining issue? And I'm going to let a very strong anti-abortionist theologian answer that question for us. He does an outstanding job in an article that is often ignored. I've heard other, I've read so much in the last two or three days, and you'll find him quoted in many things, but you won't find too many people who quote what I'm going to quote for you tonight. Second question is then, what is the historical background of this understanding in Orthodox or Talmudic Judaism? Because these are Jews who treat the text as being literally from God and that we need to understand exactly what it means and base our ethics on what the text says. So what is the historic Jewish position on the origin of human life. And then third, we'll go in chronological order to what is the historical background in Christianity. And then we'll go from there to looking at what is stated in some texts and beginning to work our way through um, the exegesis. So in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at all of these things and looking at the passages and going through some uh, exegesis to demonstrate that the Bible is pretty clear on th- answering all of these questions. Now, I want to begin by reading from an article. It is titled, A Method in Which Killing Represents a Solution. A Method in Which Killing Represents a Solution, The Soul of the Unborn and the Soul of America. And it is written by Dr. Harold O.J. Brown. Here's his picture here. It's written by Dr. Harold O.J. Brown, and I want to tell you just a little bit about him because he fits the picture of academic qualifications. He is a, a significant and highly influential uh, proponent of his position, and that if it were not for the way he pushed and influenced a lot of key evangelical leaders in the early 70s, we would not have a pro-life movement today. 
Okay, so that's why he's important. Uh, I don't agree with, uh, and I'll point that out, with a number of things that he says, but he puts his finger on what the central issue is like nobody else. Harold O.J. Brown uh, held in his later years, he died of cancer in 2009 at the age of 74, but in the 90s and up until he had to to retire because of uh, cancer, he held the Franklin Foreman Chair of Christian Ethics and Theology. And if you want to read about this whole issue, ethics books, Christian ethics books are where uh, most people go. And he was professor of biblical and systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which is located in Chicago. Harold Brown um, taught at Trinity from 1971 to 75 as a visiting professor and was an associate professor of systematic theology from 76 to 83. After four years as a pastor in Switzerland, he returned to the Trinity faculty in 87, and his focus was on ethics and specifically medical ethics. Now, he, here's his degrees. He earned four degrees from Harvard, uh, Harvard University and Harvard Divinity School. He received a Bachelor of Arts in Germanic Languages and Biochemical Sciences. Now, I hand it to somebody like that. You don't find too many people who can do well in both science and liberal arts. He had a Bachelor of Divinity in Theology, the Master of Theology in Church History, and a Ph.D. in Reformation Studies. He also pursued advanced studies beyond his doctorate on Fulbright and Danforth Fellowships in Europe and the University of Marburg in Germany and the University of Vienna, Austria. And he taught courses at Basel, Switzerland, and also in a seminary in India. With the former United States Surgeon General C. Everett Koop, Brown co-founded an organization called the Christian Action Council, a leading evangelical pro-life action group, and an educational service ministry, and was chairman of that until his health would not allow him uh, anymore. He also served or taught an inter- at the International Seminar Jurisprudence on Human Rights in Strasbourg, France. So he had a wide range of expertise beyond theology, focusing a lot on ethics, medical and family values, public affairs, and political, uh, political philosophy. Now, in 1993... He penned this article that I'm citing, and that's an important date because a lot of time had gone by, and in this article, he tells a little bit about the history of what happened at the time of the decision Roe versus Wade that came down in 1973, so he's writing some 20 years later. And he says something here. He says, unfortunately... For those who consider abortion a moral evil, indeed under most circumstances a crime, the evangelical community was very slow to react to woe, to Roe. When Roe versus Wade was decision was handed down, he goes on to say that that W. A. Criswell, who was the pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, was rather ambivalent about it. In fact, he thought it was a good idea. 
that, uh, that this had been passed. Now, let me tell you who Criswell was for those of you who, have, who don't have a good uh, education and background, and this is part of your generation. He was like a two- or three-time president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He was a force in himself. When I was at seminary, he would be asked to preach in chapel at least once a semester, and he was a force to be reckoned with. He was... Um, he built First Baptist Dallas into a, a huge church. And for many people within the Southern Baptist Convention, if he said jump, they asked how high on the way up. Okay? And so his view on Roe versus Wade was, well, this might really be a good thing. But Harold O.J. Brown went, flew to Dallas and uh, spent a lot of time with him over a week. And by the time O.J. Brown got, Harold Brown got through with him, uh, Criswell had changed his view and was leading the charge for the uh, anti-abortion movement. Also, uh, he was uh, close friends with Billy Graham. Harold O.J. Brown was viewed as one of the theologians for the new evangelical movement coming out of the 50s and 60s, and Graham was right at the forefront of that. And he and Billy Graham initially supported the anti-abortion cause. His wife Ruth became one of the council, that is the Christian Action Council that he had, that uh, Brown had begun, was one of the council sponsors. And Graham himself uh, was willing to address the National Right to Life Committee. This is back in the uh, mid-70s. But he was warned off by his lawyer, who was Harriet Pilple, who was a prominent strategist of the abortion movement, so Graham dropped all of his support, but later, due to the influence of Brown, I think he reversed course on that. Now, that is taking place in the early to mid-70s. By 1978, Francis Schaeffer, who I appreciate for many, many reasons, that you read his writings today, and you think that he's writing today. He and a few others who were very prescient understood that the shift to postmodernism occurred about 1964, and what they were writing and saying as they critiqued Western civilization was as true last week as it was when he wrote this these things in the 70s. But he became very... Uh, almost radicalized in his anti-abortion views, and he put together a book and a film series that is quite good, and I would recommend this, um, called Whatever Happened to, uh, excuse me, How Should We Then Live? That was the first one. And they took this, and they, it was a multimedia presentation, and they had lectures by by Dr. Schaefer, and they, they uh, just had the film series in Houston and several other cities in the U.S. I don't know if any of you went, went to those. But then they had a full-bore multimedia presentation in Dallas and in Los Angeles and New York and maybe Chicago. I think there were five locations. And I was a sophomore, second-year Dallas Seminary, I guess, when that came through, so that would have been... 70, 78 probably, and they went to the auditorium at SMU, and I remember he had all of his kids and grandkids were there, and they took up the first three rows, and then Tommy Ice and I were sitting right behind them, and then right behind us, Charlie Clough, who was pastoring Love Bible Church at the time, was sitting behind me with a lot of people from his church. 
And this was a great, he traces history. It's the impact of Christianity on Western civilization, on philosophy, on architecture, on art, on music. And it, it really does well. But at the end, he begins to touch on the issue, issues related to abortion and the moral collapse of Western civilization. That led to expanding that whole topic to dealing with abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia. And that came out in a book two years later called Whatever Happened to the Human Race? And they did the same thing with that. C. Everett Koop, who was a later Surgeon General for the U.S., was a major spokesperson. They had a couple of other speakers uh, that, that uh, were involved in that. And that is really where the moral majority, y'all remember Jerry Falwell's moral majority, that was the first big product out of that series. And up to this point, if you remember, evangelicals weren't concerned about abortion because that was a Catholic problem. That wasn't a Protestant issue. This is a Catholic problem. But all of a sudden, these leaders shifted it, and so it became a, a... you know, just a big, big issue. So in this, in this article, he says, it is interesting that some of the medical and legal discussion about abortion is now turning to speculation concerning the time of insolment. Even though neither academic medicine nor law has hitherto had much to say about the nature of the human soul, or even whether such a thing as a soul exists. And, and, and that's because in modern science, because they've rejected the Bible, everything is biochemical. We, there's no such thing as an immaterial soul. Everything is, is material. So from the, from the perspective of science and medicine, everything is, is just, just material and physical, and there's nothing immaterial. There's no such thing as a soul. So what he's saying is now they're beginning to think and talk about this a little bit. Okay, he goes on to say it is precisely because insolment on the one hand cannot be brought into the relationship with life or vilification. Why not? You can't demonstrate it empirically. You can't go into the laboratory and determine when the soul's there, when it's not there. All you have is you have the material uh, child in the womb and you have but you don't know whether the soul is there or not. And this is one of the things that uh, we should be aware of in all these discussions where you see um, response to pain, you see EEGs, EKGs, all they're measuring are just material biological function. They're n- they, and that's where he's going to go with this. He's, his conclusion, and here's his foremost anti-abortionist, he says, there's no way any of us can tell when the soul is actually there. Now, that's not something that you ever hear anybody discuss in this whole issue, is how do you know if the soul's there? But that's where he's going with this. And he's saying it can't happen on the legal side because uh, with, it's determined by religious assumptions. It, it's determined by your view of revelation. And the government can't come in and impose a view based on a religious conclusion. So this is where he's going. Now, he goes on to say, however defined, he says, but on the other hand, it's precisely associated in folk thought and popular culture with quickening 
and thus with life that the concept of ensoulment is creeping back into the discussion. That's because it's talked about at the popular level is what he's saying. It's self-evident religious or theological nature. So what, what he's saying is the government can't get involved in this. Courts can't get involved in this. He says, factually, the government is not prepared to take the question of the presence or absence of the human soul into account. Indeed, it is neither prepared nor equipped so much as to consider whether such a thing as a human soul exists. Thus, the discussion of ensoulment for all practical purposes is necessarily confined to those religious circles, especially, but not only Christian ones, um, who do believe that man has a soul. See, he's he's saying this whole. The, the, he's saying the most important issue here is when the soul shows up, and the only way you can figure that out is from theology. It's from what the Bible says. He goes on to say, however, one understands ensoulment. It is not possible to assume that the fetus remains without a soul until live birth. That's his opinion. He hasn't proven that. He never does. He just throws it out there, and he's dead wrong. He goes on to say that. Um, A few, very few evangelical thinkers have proposed that the baby becomes a living person only with its first breath. That's what Buddy Buddy Judge is talking about. But this view is is a historic view of Christianity that goes back to at least the early church and is the same view that we'll see as the view of Orthodox Judaism going back to, to the Old Testament. So he's just dead wrong there because he's letting his anti-abortion conclusions affect his interpretation of the data. Um, then, last part of this, he says, the question of insolment cannot be answered scripturally. He's dead wrong on that. The reason he says that is because he doesn't like where that's going to take him. Uh, the question of insolment cannot be answered scripturally as the scripture makes no reference to the process at all, and we're going to see that that's not true and why. But even if we could answer it, naming in contrast to the prevailing views a late point in pregnancy, our answer would not be relevant to the current legal discussion inasmuch as it would move on a theological plane and deal with issues of which the legislatures and the courts are supposed to take no notice. All right, now, I'm going to tell you what he's really saying, even though he's not coming out and saying this. What he's saying is this, that whatever is in the womb is human. And he's actually right. This is not something other. It's not like a hangnail. It's not like an appendix or tonsils that can be removed. It is something new. It is full human biological life. It's not some other animal. It's not, uh, it's, it's not something that's, that's inorganic. It is human biological life that aside from something interrupting it, it's going to go through a natural process that culminates in a fully insult human being. Second thing that he says is that Scripture cannot answer the question as to the timing of insolment. Now, that's just dead wrong. It's very clear. Third, he says, we don't want the government or courts attempting to decide the time of insolment apart from revelation. Well, that's true. But he doesn't follow that. He doesn't go to that conclusion. It's the natural result of what he has said. If we can only determine that it's full human life by knowing when the soul is there, and we can't know when the soul is there, then we don't want the government deciding when the soul is there. That has 
some other implications we'll get to eventually. Okay. Now, what I want to do is answer the next question, which is what is the historical background in Judaism? This is fascinating. This information comes out of the... uh, Let me find the source here. It is uh, edited by Jacob Neusner, the Encyclopedia of Judaism, which was published in the year 2000. Now, these dates are important. This is not that old. That's almost 20 years ago, but when you're looking at material like that, that's, that's fairly recent. When I first discovered this, it had only been out about, about two or three years. So in this encyclopedia, when you look under, I think the category was under, under, uh, under abortion, it goes through a very lengthy analysis And he says, in Jewish law, an unborn fetus is not considered to be a person. The Hebrew word is nefesh, or soul. So he's going to equate being a person with having a soul. Now, legally, that's going to run into some problems. This whole idea of of what is personhood, this is, uh, you know, the one side wants to declare that they're not a person until birth. The other side says they're a person from conception. And for those who believe that life begins at conception, that presents, I'll just mention one problem. Life begins at birth. So if you're born in the United States, you're you're a citizen. But if life begins at conception, then if you're conceived in Mexico, you're a Mexican citizen. If you're conceived in Japan, you're a Japanese citizen. If you're conceived in Italy, you're Italian. It's not where you're born, it's where you're conceived. Well, how do you know that? Well, it's not evident, but everybody knows when you're born and where you're born, or should, unless you're Obama. Um, Just making a joke. (laughs) In Jewish law, an unborn fetus is not considered to be a person until he's born. The fetus is regarded as part of its mother's body and not a separate being until it begins to egress from the womb during parturition. Until 40 days after conception. Now, where do they get that? That's brought into their view from Aristotelianism. Aristotle, with no medical evidence whatsoever, says that it, the, the male becomes a person, uh, a human being at 40 days, and then 80 days if it's a woman. There's no evidence for that. But that's the influence of Greek philosophy on some of their uh, conclusions. But what he says then is until 40 days after conception, the fertilized egg is considered mere fluid. It's referred to in, we t- studied this in John 3 just a couple of weeks ago when Jesus says you have to be born of the water and of spirit. Born of water is a the way they talked about the seminal fluid and what's conceived in the womb. Now, he goes on to say, the major Talmudic source for abortion rulings in Judaism discuss a case of danger to to the mother. If the mother's having difficulty giving birth, one cuts up the fetus within her womb because it's either the woman or the the baby. So you don't take the life of the mother. You make sure you preserve the life, life of the mother. And he says there are many other Talmudic sources which support the non-person status of the unborn fetus until the until birth, and this is when they stay once they take their first breath, 
that is when the child is fully ensouled. And that goes back to uh, Genesis 2. So that's the historical background. So Buddy, Buddy Judge was completely wrong. Uh, this is not the view of just Christianity. It's a view of Jews. And neither early Christians who held this view nor Jews believed it justified abortion. In fact, one of the things that I, I've read two or three different studies dealing with abortion in uh, Stone Age tribes, abortion in various other uh, in the ancient Middle East, and children were so viewed as so necessary to perpetuate the civilization, to help on the farm, and all of these other things that no no one believed that that you should ever have voluntary uh, abortions. This was so uh, so foreign, foreign to them. So, what are the historical background? What's the historical background in Christianity? So, the big question is. Is the soul passed from one generation to another by procreation, or does God create each soul directly and immediately? Those are the two major, major positions. The, there are only three positions on the origin of the soul. The first is the pre-existence of the soul, and this is the view that all the souls have already been created, and they're up in heaven, and God's just waiting for the body to be born, and then he puts the soul there. This is um, comes out of Platonism. It's not a Christian view. It's not a Jewish view, but there were some sects that picked up and were influenced by that uh, over the years, but pre-existence of the soul is not a biblical view at all, not a Christian view. Uh, so there were just minor groups that attempted to incorporate that. Then you have the second view. The second view is called traditionism. It comes from a Latin word, uh, traducere, which means to transfer. So it's the idea of transferring the soul from the parents to the uh, infant in the womb. This view teaches that both the material body and the immaterial soul are transmitted through physical procreation. The problem with that is the originator of this position was Tertullian. Remember Tertullian's early church father in the late 2nd century and into the 3rd century that coined the word Trinitas to explain the three persons in one in the Godhead. But he had some errors in some other areas, and he believed that the soul was uh, material, not immaterial. And so traditionism up through the Middle Ages was the view that the soul was transmitted uh, through procreation. It's transmitted as uh, Thomas Aquinas. Now, Thomas Aquinas is important because Aquinas is a... Um, is not a traditionist. He is considered the premier theologian of the Roman Catholic Church. I did my master's work at a, the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas in philosophy, and we read quite a bit. That was the focal point was Thomistic philosophy. And he has made a statement in regard to traditionism, and he said very strong. It is heresy to believe that the soul is transmitted through the semen. That is a strong statement. 
uh, it generally has not been the Roman Catholic view of of um, of most. It, it, uh, it they actually, I believe, somewhere, and I'm trying to tra- trace this down, and haven't because writers just use these terms and do not get as precise as they should. But they talk about creationism, but they don't talk about that I've found birth or death. So they, they, the, the Roman Catholic position is probably because of Aquinas, uh, creationism at, at uh, conception. We'll talk about that later, a lot of issues related to that. Others who held to a tradition view were Martin Luther and... Most Lutherans, or that's the historic position of Lutheranism, not necessarily the position of modern Lutherans. Uh, W.G.T. Shedd, who was a um, Presbyterian theologian in the mid-19th century, one of the two or three foremost theologians in the mid-19th century, along with Charles Hodge. And uh, L.S. Chafer. Chafer had a difficulty. He couldn't really make up his mind on the issue, but he thought that the evidence was slightly in favor of traditionism. Now, that's odd for Chafer because Chafer came out of a Calvinist uh, Reformed background, and the Reformed tradition is almost 100% creationist in their understanding of the uh, origin of the soul. What's interesting is that in Shedd's, um, in Shedd's systematic theology, he says creationism has been the most common view during the last two centuries. Now, today you have people say, oh, if, you're, if you believe in the creationist view, then you must be pro-abortion. And, and this is absurd. I, I know of theologians who shifted their position not based on exegesis, but because of the influence of Roe versus Wade. And they were creationists before, and afterwards they, uh, they changed because of their, uh, their, their view on, I mean, because of Roe versus Wade. So that's the traditionist view. The other view is called creationism, not to be confused with the use of the term creation, creationism in terms of the creation versus evolution debate. This is the creation of the soul. And this teaches that that only the body is generated through physical procreation. The soul is directly created by God and imparted at birth. And we'll show why that, that's the predominant view. Although I believe that in the last, especially since the early 70s, you have a lot of um, various people who come up and said, well, this is at conception. But there, there's, we'll get into why there's some real problems with that, not only exegetically, but, but practically. So for creationists, the body is created by God indirectly through the inter- intermediate means of sexual procreation. But that doesn't mean that God isn't intimately involved in the details. And we'll look at passages that show that. That shows the value of the human body in the womb. Um, so, And then the soul is created directly by God through intermediate means. Okay, all that's by way of education to help us, uh, our introduction to help us uh, focus on some of these issues. Creationists would be Jerome who translated the uh, uh, Greek and Hebrew Bibles into Latin, the Latin version known as the Vulgate. 
uh, Thomas Aquinas. Some people will put uh, Augustine in this camp. Augustine went back and forth. Uh, John Calvin, Charles Hodge would all be identified as as creationists. So the starting point in understanding this whole issue is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. So let's start there. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 2, 7, and we're going to look at this verse, but we're going to also look at the surrounding context. Genesis 2, 7, we read, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, this is the description of what God is doing on the sixth day of creation. The first week of creation, the first six days of creation, are summarized in chapter 1 and ends in chapter 2, verse 4. And so the first chapter is broken at the wrong place. It should have been broken probably at the end of verse 3, because I believe the phrase, this is the history of the heavens and the earth, is an introduction to this is what's going to happen to the heavens and the earth that we just learned were created by God. So on that on that sixth day, along with creating the land animals, God created the human race. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But God didn't go poof, and there was a man and a woman. This just summarizes what he did. And Genesis 2, starting in um, in verse 5 describes what God does and the process of creating the first man. So 5 and 6 describe the environment in the, uh, in the garden. And then verse 7, we read that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. The Hebrew verb here is the verb yatsar, which is a verb that is used of the potter shaping the clay. It is a picture of someone making, shaping, forming something with previously existing materials. And so he forms the man from the chemicals of the soil, from the dust dust of the ground. This indicates that he is making the body. So man is comprised of body, physical material body, and then an immaterial soul, immaterial spirit. And so he forms, shapes, structures the human body intentionally as what we know it to be a bipedal hominoid. And God in his omniscience knows that one day he is going to incarnate the Son of God into this body. So it's going to be the perfect physical body possible to express deity, to express God. Uh, to the human race. So stage one is he makes the body. He makes the physical home. That's analogous to the illustration I used earlier of building a house. You lay the foundation, you set up the, the studs, you frame it in, you put up the walls, the roof, all the plumbing, electricity. And then once the house is completed, then you move in. This is the process that 
that is begun here. There is the building of the physical home, the tent in which we live, and then the soul moves in. It's typical process. So the second part has to do with that which is immaterial. God breathed. This is the Hebrew verb nafach, which refers to very simple. It's the act of breathing. Now, God doesn't breathe. So this is clearly an anthropomorphism. Not God doesn't actually breathe, but it expresses something vital. And God is going to um, breathe or put something into man that is going to bring life or vivify the body. He breathes into the nostrils the breath of life. And this is a key phrase it's the Hebrew word neshema, which indicates the breath of life. And this is important because this is that which leads to the man becoming a living being. So you have the, a living soul, literally. The first, the, this phrase is made up of two Hebrew words, nefesh hayah. The word living is from the verb hai which means a living thing, something that is alive. And so it is not described as having uh, this life. But this, th- there are things about what's going on here that are unique to this original creation because it's not being produced in a womb where there is biological activity at the cellular level until this happens. But there's biological level, uh, biological activity at the cellular level and producing growth and development all through the period of gestation, which is not just simply biological life. It is distinctive biological life. It is human biological life. And that's why when we get to these passages uh, later talking about this, that God values in the psalmist, Psalm 139, Job in several places talk about God forming, shaping them in the womb. It may be done indirectly, through the biological processes that God has created, but that doesn't mean that God is not intimately involved. And I think that one of the reasons that, and we'll talk about the the high level of spont- what's called spontaneous abortions that take place, is because the because of the corruption of sin that in the process of fertilization and initial attempts to implant and to growth, something has malfunctioned, and so God God cancels it, the biological life, because it would not produce a healthy body where the soul could survive. So you have this first word that this is a living being. The word refers to all kinds of animals, uh, mammals are said to be living beings. The beasts of the earth are living souls, and that refers to all of them. What distinguishes an animal from a human being is not a living soul, but that our soul is in the image of God. We are in the image of God. That makes us unique and distinctive. And we can't separate that and say, well, that's just the soul that doesn't have anything to do with the body because God designed the body to be the perfect, ex- the perfect environment through which that soul that's in his image could express itself. 
Okay, so the body, the human body, has high value, high high significance. So what we conclude from this is that hu- human biological life plus human soul life equals full human life. But that doesn't justify minimizing the value of the, of the physical body. And how do we know that? Because you have in the Psalms, and it's quoted in the Hebrews, a bo- the Messiah saying, a body you have prepared for me. The body prepared for Jesus isn't just that body which was prepared for Jesus. It's this body that is designed in the, in the garden because that's going to be the kind of body that Jesus has, and it's going to be the best way for God to express who he is through that physical body. So we have a lot of places that talk about Neshama. Now, the reason this is important is because the argument is that there's no place in the Scripture that talk about when the soul enters into the body. That was the argument that, that Brown was making and that many others make. So Genesis 7.22, this is at the time of the flood, all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. It's the breath of life, okay? This is what distinguishes them. They're, they have this breath of life, and all that did not have it, uh, all, all who had it died. Deuteronomy 20, verse 16. Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. We come along and we say, well, it's an EEG or an EKG or some other factor. Scripture is saying the defining factor is breath. And that goes back to the fact that God breathed into the nostrils of Adam and he became a living soul. Joshua 10.40, then jo- thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Again, Isaiah 2.22, Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? Defining a living human being according to the parameters of the breath of life. So this indicates that is what's central to life as opposed to death. We see it again in Isaiah 42, 5. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it. God gives breath to the people on it. And spirit, and here it's ruach, the same word that is used for the Holy Spirit and the same word that would be used in, like for the human spirit. And remember when I teach on dichotomy and trichotomy, And I make a point of saying that these words, ruach, can mean wind. It can mean, in some places, it means soul. In some places, it just means the immaterial part of man. But there are places, like in Hebrews 4.12, that the Word of God divides the soul from the spirit. Obviously, in that passage, they distinguish between soul and spirit. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, when Paul talks about body, soul, and spirit, there's a distinction there. But in other places, the words are used synonymously and overlapping. And uh, in James, it talks about the fact that the body without the spirit is dead. 
That's not talking about the human spirit. That's using spirit in the sense of immaterial spirit. So we have to be very careful how we understand these terms every time we use them. And so here, the breath to the people on it, and spirit is parallel to breath, synonymous with breath, and spirit to those who walk in it. God is the source of life. So that is one reason life is considered to be valuable. Isaiah fifty-seven sixteen, For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. God has been announcing his judgment on Israel, and here he says, I'm not going to carry this out forever. For the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of those whom I have made. So here again you have Ruach used in uh, the third line, and you have Neshama used in the last line. The breath of those whom I have made it establishes this as the, as the metric for determining life. And then in Ecclesiastes 12.7, then the dust will return, talking about what happens at death. Remember earlier in Ecclesiastes, he lists the time frame, or time to be born, doesn't say a time to be conceived, a time to be born and a time to die. Here he says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit, the ruach, will return to God who gave it. So here ruach just is, is similar to uh, neshema. It's that breath of life. So you have the immaterial part of goes to God, and you see a clear distinction here between the physical, biological life and the and the the soul of course at this time that biological life has died physically and and i make a point of that because i was reading one critique of this view and they were saying you know making some kind of comment that there's no way you can distinguish between biolo- human biological life and uh, and the immaterial life i'll wrap with this third point Some passages suggest God uses an indirect means to create physical life, but, um, excuse me, I mistyped that. Some passages suggest God uses an indirect means to create physical life, but a direct means for soul life, for um, the, the ultimate immaterial life of the man. Job 121, naked I came from my mother's womb. Now, this is an interesting phrase. I don't think we're going to have time to get into it tonight because I want to spend some time on it. It's very important. The Hebrew word here, and we're going to see this verse show up at almost every point coming up. The Hebrew word here is the preposition men and the noun beton for womb. The par- there's a synonym to betten, and that is rechem. So you have these two words used interchangeably, me betten and me rechem. Now, contrary to what you may have been taught, the significance of the preposition grammatically is totally irrelevant because this is an idiom. And that's important to understand. And we're going to get into this later, but what the idiom is is that in order to, you look at the uh, English phrase right here, from birth. You have a preposition and an object to the preposition. For those of you who have forgotten all of your uh, elementary school grammar, the object of the preposition is a noun. The word birth in this prepositional phrase is a noun. Okay? Now that's real important. 
because birth is also a verb that uh, Mary gave birth to Jesus. In that sentence, birth is a verb. In Hebrew, there is no noun for birth. There is a noun for conception, and there's a verb to conceive. So if you want to say from conception, then you have a noun to do it. But if you want to say from birth, you don't have a noun to do it. So you have to use a workaround. And the workaround is an idiom from the womb. And to prove that I'm not just making this up, if you, uh, and I'll have more stats on this because I'll have more time to work on this, but I had a little time today and I discovered that in the New King James Version, it translates me betten as from birth three times. In the NIV, it translates it five times. We're just talking about the Old Testament. It also does it many times in the New Testament. And eight times in the NET Bible. And so that many English Bibles, what's interesting is the NIV translates this, I believe it's eight times total in Old Testament and New Testament passages. And um, some other translations translate it otherwise, but these aren't the same verses. So you have about a, a total that I've come up with so far is about 20 different verses in the Old and New Testament that have uh, a translation of Mibetan or the Greek equivalent, which is ekkoilea, that it's translated as an idiom, meaning from birth, but it's not always the same verses. In fact, there's no overlap. So what that tells you is that, that it is understood by Hebrew scholars and by translators that that's the sense of this thing, of this idiom, is from the womb means from birth. And so Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb. Literally, that would be naked I came uh, from my mother at birth. And naked, I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In Job 33, 4, the Spirit of God has made me. Okay, now that's not direct unless he's talking about his soul. Then he would be saying the Spirit of God has created my soul. This would support creationism. And the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So because it's parallel to breath of the Almighty, you could translate that as spirit, but you could also translate like some of those other passages we saw a few minutes ago where the spirit, spirit ruach is parallel to neshama. And so this would be the uh, saying the same thing, that it is God's breath that gives us life. That is not, breathing doesn't occur in the womb. And again, our passage I talked about a minute ago, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit... Ruach will return to God who gave it. So that raises two questions. Does God continue the same pattern of creation of life as we see with Adam, where he first creates the physical home and then he brings the soul in the immaterial part into the body? Second question, does God still have one process for generating the material part of man and another process for generating the immaterial part of man? And I think that that's what we're going to have to demonstrate in the next section and going through uh, how the Bible defines the parameters of life. Is it from conception to death or is it from birth to death? And that 
to me is the most important question. And it's one that you've, I find few people interacting uh, at, a prof at a deep exegetical level, working through those details. So let's close in prayer. Next time we'll come back and continue to pursue uh, this, this study. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things and recognize that, that your word places such a high value on life a high value on the life that you form in the womb and the high value of that which comes forth, which is then ensouled uh, by making us a living being created in your image. And Father, help us to understand the significance of that and its implications in all that we do because it tells us that each one of us has an incredible value before you and that we should never be running ourselves down or thinking lowly of ourselves because we are created in your image. Everything about us has value and significance. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.